Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Busman, and this week I'm going to drop you in on a moderation I did at the Money 2020 conference in Las Vegas with an American original, Charles Schwab. I want to thank the folks at Money 2020 for passing along the recording. At the same time, I got to admit, I'm kind of kicking myself here because I didn't bring along my podcasting equipment with me when I headed backstage before our session. I've been told there wouldn't be much time to speak with Charles before the event, but he arrived earlier than planned. And as it turned out, we got to spend an hour together. Oh, man, it was a beautiful hour. An endearing hour. And if you were in on that hour, you'd know exactly why I started our talk on stage with the words, I love you, man. Now, if you think Charles Schwab is a pillar of our financial sector, you're right. His firm handles $3 trillion in assets. That's a hard word for me to wrap my head around. Trillion. Here's what you got to understand about Chuck. At the start, people on Wall Street did not like him. Why? Well, he broke in by charging people less money to invest in the stock market than the traditional firms out there. Charles has lived by a very simple code. Comes down to this. I want my company to give people what I would want if I were the customer. And that principle has guided him every step of the way for decades. That's why his company charges zero commissions on stock purchases now. You heard me right. Zero. Zippo. Nada. You look at him, he's nadly dressed, seems like a Wall Street guy. But his company grew out of San Francisco, started on sawhorses and plywood desks. This guy was a rebel and he managed to pull it all off with dyslexia, which he didn't even know he had until he was about 40. I wish I would have spent my hour backstage with Charles sooner, like say in 1986, because if I had invested $1,000 in his company back in 1987 and never touched the money after that, never touched it, just left it with Charles, you know how much it would be worth now? Any idea? $21 million. 21 million bucks. That's because, as you'll read on page 31 of the book Invested, the growth would be about 21,000%. Hope I got the math right there. 1,000 bucks times 21,000%. Better get Randy Owens and the Big Questions Accounting Department to check on that. Anyway, the book Invested is about the journey of Charles' business, but it really makes you think about what you can do if you're prepared to make an investment, make sure what you've invested your money in continues to grow, then let compound interest do the work for you. 21 million bucks, man. Now that would make me as comfortable as putting on a Sportique hoodie, which is why you should go to Sportique.com and check out the hoodies, sweatpants, comfy tees, and chinos 
that will give you the freedom to room in comfort. Trust me, they cost a lot less than 21 million bucks. And if you use the offer code CAL, you'll get a 20% discount. When it comes down to it, you're living in the moment. Make your moments as comfortable as they can be with Sportique. Please enjoy this conversation I had on stage with Charles. It's brief, I know, too brief. But next time, I promise to bring my podcasting equipment wherever I go, and I'll be prepared to improvise. Here's Chuck. Please welcome Charles Schwab and Cal Fussman to the stage. Thank you. I love you, man. Keep that music going, baby. <laughs> I love it. So I just read your book over the weekend, Invested, and over and again, it's hundreds of pages, this idea keeps coming to me. What would I want if I was the customer? And you just kept giving the customer what you would have wanted. Cal, we just try to jump ahead of your thinking. We always want to be one step ahead of our customer and coming out with new ideas and innovations and so forth. I love that room and all the exhibitors, all the wonderful exhibitors out here are creating all these incredible ideas. That's what they're doing. Every day, one day, ahead of what the customer wants and cheaper. This all goes back to a sense of optimism that you have. You walk into that room and you just feel optimism. I just sort of shiver with optimism. Yeah, it's incredible to see. And so that's sort of what my story is sort of all about. You younger people out there, I started in 73 doing this stuff. And every time we came out of a little innovation, our client base just kept growing and growing and growing. And we were happier and happier about it. A lot of people here won't have heard of the bowling bust. I I'm reading the book and I actually started laughing out loud when I came across this. Can you explain the bowling bust to everybody? The bowling thing started really in 1962 when I was just getting out of business school. It was my first big collapse in the stock market. But before that, everybody in the world then is now 1962, you can talk to your parents about it. Everybody was going to be a bowler. Everyone, so the bowling companies, the guys who made the alleys were making a lot of money, and stocks were going up. The guys who made the shoes, the guys who made the chalk, all the score pads, all that stuff, they were all going to the moon in terms of, and that peaked out just about 1962. And in 63, they all went down to like, about 80% in value. But that was my first major bubble. So I've seen a lot of bubbles since then. So the story about the bowling ball, I was giving a talk to the Stanford group in 19, 2000 was, and the collapse of the dot-com thing happened in 2000. And so I brought, they sent me a bowling ball to remind me of the story I told about the bowling industry in 1962. That was my first really bubble as such. 
What did you learn from the bowling ball bust that took you forward through the 1987 and Black Monday and the dot-com bust in 2008? Well, it just was a certainly first lesson in how valuations go in the stock market. You know, the economy goes along pretty steadily. It's going four or five percent per annum back then, maybe two or three now percent per annum. And stock markets go up and they go down and they go up and they go down. So you can't be enamored by the stock market because it's always moving. And But then you have to understand when the market does drop and it always will. It will now, sometime. We don't know exactly when, but then you have patience to stay in there, stay in the game right on through and have the confidence. So it, for me, that whole story is about developing the confidence in the future, that innovation is going to power us through to the next wave on the upside. So if I had invested in your company back when you started and reinvested my dividends over the last 31 years, I'd have a profit of 21,000%? Something like that, give or take a couple percent. Yeah, exactly. So that's just the long-term benefit, but not too many people. Maybe I hung in there, but I also bought a new car along the way. So I took a little piece off of that, a little piece off of buy a new house or something. So that was the maximum you could achieve in that time period with doing nothing. Why is it so hard for people to have that patience? Well, we have other needs in life. We have we've got to bring our kids up. We've got to put them in school, private schools mostly, because our public schools are a real mess now, unfortunately. That's where I went to school, public school. Uh, we have a lot of needs for using our good income and our capital for a lot of things. And so it's, it's difficult to, uh, to achieve that patience. Can you remember the first moment when you discovered stocks? Oh, I was about 13, and my father explained to me the stock page, and of course I was really interested at that age 13 in the $3 stocks. You know, they were, I don't know where they ended up, but I really understood when the stock goes from three to four, that meant a lot of money, particularly for a 13-year-old. So that's, I began thinking about stocks, and of course, went to school, went to college and all that stuff, graduate school, et cetera. And uh, fortunately, I fell into the investing world and uh, was able to create Schwab and Company uh, along the way. And innovation was always driving us with new things. Uh, some of you don't remember the 800 numbers back then or moving to 24-7 or the internet came in and how we adopted all that. So now today it's seems like it's pretty simple, but there are a little, the story that I wrote about the journey we had is all in the book, and it's pretty interesting, actually. What was it like to buy stocks before 1975? Oh, my before goodness. May Day? It was a, almost a closed industry. It had been uh, the pricing of the stock market business had been fixed, fixed rates for easily uh, 200 years and they all got together under the buttonwood tree, as they called it, and set the price of, of transactions. And so it was very expensive for most average people to come into the stock market, even think about buying 100 shares, it was pretty expensive. And so our mission at the time was to change the whole 
paradigm of stock investing, bring the rates down so anybody can come in and invest and also make it easier, more convenient, longer hours, 24-7, all those kinds of things that many of you don't remember, but it used to be broker's hours, like banks. They were open at 10 in the morning, they closed at three, five days a week. Well, most people say, that's crazy. So it was obvious to us that we had to change all that, which we did. What happened on May Day 1975 that set everything in motion for you? Well, it was a, a great move by Congress, actually, who mandated that commissions become eliminated. There would be no fixed commissions. So it opened up a huge door for us and other firms. There were a lot of little other firms besides myself at the time. We weren't exclusive, who were offering discounted prices where the big firms at the time would be like Merrill Lynch, raised their rates, we dropped our 75%. So it made a huge window of opportunity for us for the lower prices. And so people kept coming in to us. San Francisco is our first office. We opened second office. And now many years later, we have 400 offices and such. And uh, it was a great moment in time for us, May 75. Was this part luck or is luck always out there, but you just got to notice it? I don't know. Luck, I think, comes a lot from study. you got to really become experts in whatever business you're in. And I was a pretty heavy student in financial services at the time. I had summer jobs working for banks, working for insurance companies. I really thought I knew the industry collectively. And so the more knowledge you have about any particular industry is certainly a key, I think, to becoming successful. Yes. Luck helps a lot, let me tell you. Helped me a lot. Was there a moment where you felt like you took too much of a risk? I know you had to mortgage your home to keep yourself afloat. I never felt uh, about being taking too much risk. Maybe my wife did, I think, but I never did. I always had to go for it and, and uh, mortgage the house, you said, borrow f money from whoever would lend me money. And it was very difficult. Unlike many of you today, Wall Street is open with big open arms to come on in. They saw us as developing their competition, which was correct. So they didn't want to fund us or lend money to us or even buy stock in our company. So we had a tough time early on in, in financing ourselves. So I talk about that in the book and how we sort of figured out how to get through that maze was there a moment that you understood, oh yeah, this is working? Well, that was really the first moment was really the 75 moment when I saw Merrill raise the rates at that moment in time as we dropped ours. And there was a huge differential between the two. So that was pretty obvious to me that we had a huge gap. You know, we were a teeny little company and probably had 10 people in the company and they had 10,000 or whatever it was. So we had opportunity, but we need to do a lot of work. Other ways that you were innovating, the election day in 1980, basically everybody else closed on election day, you stayed open. That was one of the many we like to call our innovations. When Ronald Reagan, one of the great presidents, I think of the last 50 years was elected, this is now 1980, it goes way back in time, we decided the election day to keep the business open 
overnight. We had a huge influx as the polls kept coming in, the various numbers come in. Reagan won with a landslide. We were, had a landslide of our own. People wanted to buy stocks because they were, their enthusiasm, their confidence about business was really jacked up by his election because he was really a pro-business guy. And so, guess what? We decided to keep our business open 24 hours, seven days a week. I mean, we didn't do it instantly, but we did it over the next couple of years. That was lucky, serendipitous, I don't know what, or maybe smart. Other things happen. Uh, rules are changed so that IRAs can flourish that was, around 82. That was another innovation of ours. I mean, innovation as such, it was a pricing decision. Uh, people were charging $25 an account for an IRA account at the typical bank. We said, that's ridiculous. We want people to invest, be investors. We took that down to zero, just like we did commissions recently. And so what happened? The IRA accounts just sort of ballooned in terms of then people. That was wonderful, but they came in with their money. They bought mutual funds, they bought stocks, they did other things. And so we did out, made out fairly well, economically speaking, but they had a free IRA account. And it just keeps coming back to give the customer what I would want if I was a customer. The, the obvious thing that anybody would want. So it was sort of, as I say, it's not from the heavens, it was sort of what's obvious to anybody in the audience. Well, why not just do it? Because I think our customers definitely would like it. How do you see the future played through that philosophy? Well, a couple things we're doing. As you know, so many stock prices have gone crazy in terms of, you know, Amazon, $1,600 a share, so we're going to fractionalize shares and make it cheaper in terms of the pricing for people can buy a tenth of a share or a twentieth of a share. It's just going to become easier for the younger people who don't have a lot of money to get started but not, and be able to buy individual stocks, but buy a fraction of them. That's on the millennium side. On the other side, we're doing lots of things as people are getting to the retirement age who are, they have their 401 corporate account, they have their IRA account, they have all these accounts. But it's very confusing when you get to be 65 and move into the retirement mode, you have minimum distributions. Those are very complicated rules that the government put through. So we're gonna make it really easy by an income management account to make it possible for people to manage their affairs, get a single paycheck a month from their own assets. Social Security would be added in and hopefully it'll make life simpler and easier for our senior people, me included. Got a couple of minutes left to look at young people and older people. Why don't we educate younger people about the stock market? Oh, it's a sad thing in America. You don't have any education in terms of financial literacy. You don't get it in high school. You don't get it in college. And so many of our young people are finding they get into real bad trouble in student loans. You can see the disaster that's happened there, a trillion and a half dollars uh, in that area. And they'll never, you know, many of them will never be able to pay it off as such. So managing debt, managing credit cards, managing all the financial things in your life, we need more education about. So I'm pretty much devoted to what we call financial literacy and things of that nature. So all the profits my book, I don't know if there can be any profits, will go to financial literacy, go to the introduction of different classes, 
We do things already for Boys and Girls Club. We'll be doing something, I'm doing one at Stanford here next spring, it'll be called Introduction to Financial Decisions. So financial literacy is a big mantra for me, and so that's where we're gonna go. And what about the way we look at retirement? Because when you were young, how did people see retirement? Well, interestingly enough, Social Security was designed oh, many, many years ago in, in the late 30s and 40s. And at the time, the average man died at 65. Half died before 65 and half lived beyond 65. Today, with medical science, that number has sort of gradually moved up. It's well into the early 80s now and definitely will be going up higher. So you have a period of time when you're retired, living on your own assets. Yes, Social Security will still be there, but you have to fundamentally develop your own savings, your own sort of retirement plan yourself. And uh, so you'll be living 20 years after finishing your job as such. And hopefully for this generation, you'll be even beyond that. So be closer to 30 years, you've got to start saving today. Yeah, so my dad's 89 and he's going well. What if I live to 120? Well, they're going to be setting you. They're going to be, you're going to be in medical science. You'll be in medical journals. You go to 120, that'll be interesting. <laughs> Good luck. But if I was thinking, I've got to prepare myself, to, I've got to save for another 50 yeah. years, how do I approach that? How does anybody? Well, there's that? only one way in my view is, is do sort of what we're, this whole theme is here is about, is understanding where you get nice growth. And it's only in companies, only in companies where we can share in the growth through ownership of stocks. And that's where you get the great growth of America and participate. So make sure you start out with your 401k and IRA accounts, all those things that government has made sure you have incentives tax incentives to do those kinds of contributions when you're young, because only when you're young, you have the opportunity for compounding of growth over a period of time. And you know that what that means, compounded growth is a lot better than just linear growth. It's a lot better. Well, very hard to condense 40 years into 20 minutes, but I'm gonna walk off this stage thinking growth, growth, growth. growth. Thank, Thank you so much. Al. That's what this is all about. Thank you very much, everyone. That about wraps it up. I want to thank Tim Ferriss for nudging me to start this podcast. This week, I got to go on stage with Charles Schwab. Week before, I was on stage with the ambassador of joy and tidying up Marie Kondo. Let me tell you, Having a pack rat like me on stage with the queen of tidying up can lead to some funny moments. You'll be hearing that conversation down the road on Big Questions. Never would have had these experiences if not for Tim Ferriss. Thank you, Tim. Much gratitude. And as the saying goes, gratitude is not only the greatest of virtues, but the parent of all others. Much gratitude also to James Altucher and the guys behind this podcast, Steve Cohen and Jay Yao. They're the ones who directed me to Charles Schwab. I've had James on Big Questions twice and treasure every opportunity I get to talk to him. 
You can go to the archives and check out those episodes. You'll immediately know why I should also check out the James Altucher Show. I want to thank my pals at Sportique for enabling me to travel around to my speaking gigs in comfort. When they say Roman comfort, they mean it. Check out the hoodies, comfy tees, sweatpants, and chinos at sportique.com. That's S-P-O-R-T-I-Q-E.com. Feels so great for me to have a sponsor I love. And even better, to offer you a 20% discount on your Sportiques by using the offer code CAL. Man, it's hard to believe this podcast is going on two years old. So many beautiful things have happened because of it. Please reach out by email and tell me about guests you might like to hear. It always makes my day to hear from you. Cheers!